Welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Adam Davis, and joining me, as always, thanks to the miracle of satellite technology, it's Matt Risby. Hi, Matt. How's it going? Yeah, um, it's going well over here in the midst of uh, yet another heat wave that I'm complaining about. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just it's just sticky, Ed. I don't like it. Yeah, yeah. For me, the humidity is such a a, a constant of my life since moving to Florida that I kind of don't notice it anymore. But I always feel much more uncomfortable whenever I go to the UK and it's even like mildly warm because you don't have the escape of, you know, air conditioning or anything. So few places in England as as an entire country is so poorly set up to handle even the slightest increase in weather and humidity that uh, I find it weirdly much less tolerable than over here where it's just always swampy. (laughs) Mm. We've got it at my work. Uh, I work in a in a bakery, and the mm. the pastries are handled in a separate room um, that's temperature controlled. It's got air conditioning in it because obviously working with like very buttery pastry is going to be difficult when it gets warm. So it's it's constantly air conditioned, and in the winter it sucks to be working in there. But it's the most popular place mm-hmm. at work <laughs> during the summer. It's the only place that's tolerable because obviously in a bakery it's fucking hot because you're not next to ovens and. You do not have air conditioning, which mm. is, you know, not great. This is my my complaint. I'll get that out of the way now, and then we can go on and talk about other things. Yeah, when my parents still owned a pub back in the UK, we had a big walk-in freezer, and that was very popular to just kind of, like, sit in for, like, a minute at a time in the height of summer. Just this, particularly if you were, uh, as I often was, working in the kitchen, helping, like, clean up and, you know, do some light veg prep to get out of the, the heat and just kind of like sit there for a few minutes and think, oh, this is nice. Mm. This is nice and cool and relaxing and then run back out into the heat. Um, the only time I've ever been in a walk-in freezer, I was very frightened that I'd be stuck <laughs> in. I think oh, yeah, it's, that was... it's, it's that classic urban. And as much as it would be cool, because I'd, be, I'd have literally nothing else to do other than eat the stuff <laughs> that's in there to survive, A, it's frozen, and B, I'd be really cold. Yeah, you'd very quickly chip your tooth on like a leg of lamb or something. Yeah. Yeah, but then more for you for going straight for the leg of lamb. Mm. Start with the ice cream, Zed. Come on. That's a good That's a good point, yeah. Mm. It didn't keep much ice cream, though. It was mainly just assorted meats. It was, uh, mm. yeah. It was quite cool when you go in there and you'd see, like, a whole deer that has been kind of, like, skinned and was hanging up there. And you think, oh, wow, this is... Because you, sometimes you would just get meat brought in from some of the nearby farmers who were like, just have this and don't really have a need for it ourselves you you can have it and like okay great and you know you'd have venison for a little while it was mm. always uh that was always kind of a nice bonus but also you would walk in and it'd always be kind of crazy to just see this massive <laughs> massive deer body hanging up in there uh mm. without having been told also yeah. semi-related my dad always used to enjoy playing a prank because they would always have lots and lots of hard-boiled eggs in the fridge for just, you know, making salads and things. And he would always enjoy, whenever you got a new person in the kitchen, he would always enjoy grabbing one of them and then throwing it at them and saying, like, catch! And like, ah, ah! And then realise at the last second, oh, it's a hard-boiled egg and not a regular egg that's going to smash on the ground. 
For a second, I thought you were going to say he was like throwing out deer heads and stuff uh, <laughs> around, which would have been a fairly dark prank. And it just, I don't really, we haven't really discussed in any great detail your rural upbringing mm. um, in pubs, but I'm picturing, you know, Michael Elphick coming into your pub and pulling an eel out of his trousers and, you know, reaching over the, the thing and serving himself. And it was that kind of arrangement. For some of the customers, yeah. Like, yeah. There was, there was, they would bring in their own glasses and you'd hang them up and they'd want one with a handle for their pints and things like that. There were a lot of reg- regulars who would just kind of sit at the back and spout casual racism, you know. It was very, it was very Midlandsy. <laughs> it's, it, it's hardly surprising that uh, my area went to like, I don't know, like 65% leave or something like that. It was, it was very much the sort of place where people would just like spout daily mail talking points all the time. And you kind of mm-hmm. think it's not really worth the effort of fighting with these people. Cause like you lose, if they decide not to come in then that's literally hundreds and hundreds of pounds a day that you're losing from people who are just going to sit and prop up the end of the bar and just drink constant pints. Yeah. This is where exploiting someone's alcohol dependency mm. is, you know, morally justified if they are, you know, Brexiteers. Yeah. That's how, that's how we viewed it. It's just kind of like yeah. we're just we're just soaking their intolerance for our own, you know, gain. Like those those small town bigots put me through university, so you know, I'll always have mm. I'll always have a certain fondness for racists. Mm. That's not that's not true. Please, no one take that quote out of context. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of racists, now yeah. uh, I think probably the biggest story. This week in kind of the, the broader world of media was the cancellation of Roseanne, which was the number one show or number one quote unquote new show of the season, the revival of the show after it had been off the air for about 20 years and was touted as this kind of big outreach to Trump country in America, you know, representing the white working class that had been forgotten and all and swung the last election and all this sort of stuff. But it always had this... And whether or not that was true or not is is not for for me to say because uh, I didn't watch it because uh, I I I had gone off the show Roseanne itself towards its last seasons anyway when she won the lottery and it all got really kind of high concept and weird but also uh, I'd gone off the the person of Roseanne because she was a bonkers conspiracy theorist who spouted a lot of crazy shit on Twitter and that always seemed to be hanging over the show even when it was you know at the top of the ratings for for however long it was running for, like 13 weeks or whatever, that sense of, mm-hmm. you know, she says a lot of crazy things online. Eventually, that's going to catch up to you. And, you know, she made some very offensive remarks about uh, the former Obama staff member, Valerie Jarrett, uh, which were racist and Islamophobic. And she kind of gave out a half-hearted apology and then ABC cancelled her show, which was one of those things where you thought, yes, it's good that they have done this. This is the right choice for them to cancel it. But also, this it was easily foreseeable <laughs> that this situation mm. would uh, would occur. Yeah, I'm kind of fascinated how this has managed to happen given the kind of leanings of the rest of the cast. Mm. And that it was... I kind of was just stunned that it got on the air in the first place. And, and the writers like, as John- well. Yeah, that like uh, John Goodman and stuff would be up for it, mm. um, given everything we know about Roseanne. Yeah, I think a lot of the 
interviews that have been had with people since the show got cancelled you know like a lot of outlets reached out to people who had worked on the show in some capacity all seemed to be of the sense of like oh like we know we knew that she was kind of wacky or whatever and Mm. it seemed to suggest that either a lot of people just genuinely didn't know that she was someone who spouted like complete untruths and shared a lot of conspiracy theories online and just generally trafficked in thinly disguised or not even disguised at all racism and so they were just kind of like shocked that this happened or they were like they thought that there was some level of this stuff that was acceptable that they could stomach and that they were in in the interests of you know a job and of being on a show that was pretty much guaranteed to do fairly well just because you know Roseanne the show itself was very very popular when it was on originally and there was this sense that you know it was reaching out to this underserved audience which kind of proved to be true in that it got very good ratings initially but also it dropped off pretty uh not like to the levels where it would be cancelled just in the normal course of events but there was definitely a sense that after the initial couple of episodes interest waned in it pretty quickly and that Mm. it probably you know it would probably be in for a fate similar to the revival of the x-files where the first season came back and everyone was like oh this show's back again cool i used to watch this and then by the time the second season rolled around everyone was just kind of like yeah i I used to watch that and uh there was a reason why i stopped Mm, yeah and in terms of like answering my own question about how, <laughs> you know, whether everyone else was up for it, it seems like it's easy when you're getting paid to mm. uh, to forget, you know, what I mean what's going on. Although I've heard that someone has, people are saying that they're going to carry on the show but center it around like uh, Darlene. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Is that a thing? I mean, I haven't watched Roseanne since like the early nineties. Um, I don't remember anything about her winning the lottery. So. <laughs> I remember that was like Friday night channel four viewing. That was the good, that was the big U S sitcom at the time. And I used to kind of really enjoy it before I knew anything more about her. So yeah, I was just generally very bemused that it's happening and even more so that they're trying to shoehorn, uh, or kind of like wrap a spin off around the remaining cast. Well, my understanding is that Sarah Gilbert who plays Darlene was the, driving force behind getting the revival made in the first place like she wanted to really she wanted to bring it back and she wanted to kind of explore the the tension that would exist between you know the 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 connors being people who you know in the 90s would have been the 80s would have been kind of like staunch midwestern democrats and then coming from a place that you know had been more or less forgotten by the modern economy would maybe have been drawn to you know trumpian rhetoric in the last election and things like that and i think that that there is certainly something interesting in a show choosing to explore that dynamic but mm-hmm. i think for a lot of people it felt weird that you would try and do that through the vehicle of a show that people remember very fondly for it's you know it's brashness but also it's affectionate how affectionate it was in its treatment of the characters and that trying to combine that with the the sheer ugliness of american politics right now would have you know was an a a strange fit all around 
and that maybe you know if you want to make that show maybe you do it you know an original story as opposed to bringing them back especially with everything we knew about Roseanne's politics which add a certain level of I guess authenticity to the story that they then told in the show but also as as proved to be the case brings a lot of baggage to it Mm, yeah and now they can take that baggage and do one yeah so it'll be interesting to see if they do try and bring it back but at the same time with as as Darlene but at the same time it, it just makes you wonder like would anyone be happy with that situation? Like all these people who are trying to make her out to some sort of martyr about censorship or whatever, would they want to watch a show about Darlene? Would all the people who were pissed off by the very notion of the Roseanne show suddenly be like, oh yeah, sure, we'll watch it now, now that you got rid of her? It doesn't feel like that would be uh, a, a, a recipe for success. Mm, yeah, yeah, totally. In other news, and kind of picking up on what we talked about last week with Solo, the Ron Howard-directed prequel to the Star Wars series, you know, we talked last week about how its opening weekend was pretty soft for, certainly for a Star Wars movie, and even in terms of opening uh, Memorial Day weekend movies, which tend not to exactly blow the doors off, but still, it was pretty mediocre compared to those. And then the second weekend numbers were... Pretty ugly. It fell 65.3% to just under $30 million this weekend, which, to put it in context, The Last Jedi had the worst drop for any Star Wars movie, which was like 67%, but it also opened to like $120 million more than Solo did. So Mm. it's pretty ugly for a movie that seemed like it would have been at least a modest hit, if not a sure thing. And yeah, it just seems to underline the, the, the overall sense that this the movie whilst fine and like perfectly acceptable and enjoyable summer blockbuster fair wasn't something that people were really clamoring for. Yeah. I had this kind of thought about it because I found it very difficult to, to recommend to anyone. Mm. Um, like a lot of people have asked me, kind of this week, oh, is it worth seeing? And I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's worth seeing, but in terms of do you, am I recommending you go rushing out to watch it and spending your, your money on it? Like, it's tough to say that. If you're a Star Wars completist, yes. Hmm. If you're not, then you're probably just going to be confused by a lot of it. It's yeah. kind of, you know, playing to the choir that's already seen the film and aren't never asked for it in the first place. <laughs> So yeah, I'm I'm more I'm I'm less uh, thinking about the reasons for Solo's failure as being kind of uh, saturation or Star Wars fatigue, and more that no one really wanted the film in the first place. Mm. So it's very difficult. Like your casual, like you know, your casual audiences are going to go and see the Last Jedi. They go and see the Force Awakens. They'll go and see the you know the big films and and Rogue One I think I do think that some people went to see that thinking it was part of you know the main series I think there are some people who and I have heard genuine genuine reports of people coming out of it confused at where Kylo Ren was and mm. and the fact they had moved um, obviously they got it once the uh, the film had started but you know they thought it was part of it but uh I think you know 
I, I don't think there's any massive drive for people to go and see it because, you know, Han Solo is a fairly complete character. And no matter how well it's executed, and it's executed pretty well, as mm. well as it could have been executed given the circumstances, it's not really that essential. Uh, mm. You can live your life without knowing anything that happens in that film. Yeah, I was thinking in terms of, you know, whether or not you would recommend it to people. I was listening to the new Father John Misty album this week. And my response to it was, it's very good for how boring it is. Mm -hmm. Which is the thing where, and this has been the case of anything I've ever heard from Father John Misty, is I always listen to it and I thought, this is perfectly well-made music that does nothing for me. But Mm -hmm. I can see other people liking it. And that's kind of how I feel about Solo. It's like, it's it's perfectly well-made, but there is little about it for me that makes me think, oh yeah, everyone should rush out and see it. And I think that that sense kind of permeated it before it came out. And then I don't think there are... Like, there are certainly people who, who love it. I know that um, uh, Kaylee Donaldson, friend of the show, has said that, you know, she she has proselytized about it a lot online and, and in writing for Screen Rant. And uh, I think she's she's written for, on it for Pajiba. And there is definitely there are definitely people who really, really dig the movie and that's great. But I get the feeling that unlike the force awakens or the last Jedi, which, uh, the, the last Jedi in particular, the discussion around that movie fairly or not was kind of fairly rancorous, but Mm -hmm. it had very strong partisans on both sides. And I think that drove a lot of the discussion and also may have just driven people to check out because they were like thinking, well, all these people are so, head up about this sort of movie uh, then I should see it or you know people loved it so much they saw it multiple times and I don't feel like there's a there's a huge audience on either side uh, and Mike Ryan for Up Rocks wrote a thing where he talks about how he felt his biggest problem is it's the least fun Star Wars movie to talk about because mm. it is so perfectly fine but there's nothing like weird or ex- there's nothing particularly weird or eccentric about it except for l337 who is great there's mm. there's not a lot to it that has kind of like the sort of spark of of even like the the prequels with their kind of like weirdness you can't really have hour-long discussions about solo in the way that you could really kind of nitpick and pick apart all of like attack of the clones which pe- plenty of people have done <laughs> like the, yeah. uh, the star wars minutes guys did a whole series on Attack of the Clones, and that's that's literally hundreds of hours picking that film apart, and it's kind of hard to imagine them having quite as much material for Solo. Yeah, yeah. Plus also, plus also, I, I do think that third act reveal is... I've heard people saying, you know, it kind of really ruined the film for them because they didn't understand it, and then they had to mm. go home and read up about it, and that's not what you want from... Uh, seeing a kind of big summary fun blockbuster, you don't want to have to go and think, well, hang on, that completely alters everything. That I, even if you've seen all the Star Wars movies and you hadn't seen any of the supplementary material, you didn't kind of fo- follow it obsessively like some other people do, you would be f- kind of flummoxed by that ending and mm. you probably wouldn't have particularly promising word of mouth, I guess. 
Yeah, I, I certainly saw a bunch of conversations which started off essentially with people saying, like, saying, so does that mean that Han Solo is meant to be like 60 when A New Hope starts? <laughs> and then, then like other people being having to explain, well, no, what you, you see has happened in the cartoons. And it's like, yeah, that's probably not the sort of discussion you really want people to be having about your movie of like the minutiae of timelines. Mm. Yeah, I saw a really weird and nerdy tweet saying, well, the prologue for Rogue One predates the prologue for Solo, but then the events of Rogue One are after the events of the main film of Solo, because both films start with a flashback that is about 15 years before the actual main action of the film, and then yeah. I was just like, oh, fuck, we're going to get into this now. <laughs> but it's, just, oh, it's confusing enough as it is. But yeah, I mean, um, it's it's going to tank. Like, There's no possible way this film can make its money back mm. um, from box office receipts, because they, you know, they doubled the budget by reshooting most of it, I assume. Yeah, and also China's not interested yeah. at all, because the, the Chinese audiences don't have any sort of relationship with star wars because those movies the older movies just weren't released there and we've, we've routinely seen new star wars movies open there and just had them have absolutely no interest and that's kind of where a movie of this scale would be expected to make back uh, a, a respectable amount so even if it does okay overseas it's still yeah like you say because of the amount of money they poured into making the thing it's it's probably going to lose a lot of money and Disney, who I think had plans to make this like a trilogy unto itself, probably are reconsidering those choices. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have thought that anyone's clamouring for a sequel, even though the film is set up kind of perfectly for it. Mm. But the thing is, they've got so much scope in which to kind of tell those stories if they want to in a comic or whatever. Yeah. So, you know, that's probably where that stuff belongs. It was a... Uh, Fun experiment, but I, you know, I don't really think anyone's clamouring for more. Even though the film got like decent reviews, everyone was just like, "Yeah, sure, exactly mm-hmm. as we were." Yeah, you know, it's it. You know, it's a film <laughs> that you can watch, that you can understand, mm. and there are some things in it which are fun, but that's about it. And I think I do feel it's a shame that if they don't get to do more with this particular cast, because I did think that everyone in it was really good at what they were trying to do and i think that there's a lot of material and setup in there that could make for really really good fun sequels down the line but mm-hmm. there's also that sense of like well also alton Ehrenreich's a really interesting actor and it'd be cool to see him maybe try a few other things rather than jump onto the grind of making big budget blockbusters this early in his career when mm. you know we, we're used to seeing him in much more, much smaller and more esoteric roles, uh, you know, mm. maybe, yeah, he can he can do some more blocks buses down the line. But I'd, I'd still like to see him do smaller, more interesting stuff. Mm. Well, and here's a question: if if they decided to do a a sequel, who's going to want to direct it? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's the kind of thing that, like, you know, Ron Howard came on and you know fought fires like Billio, and you know pulled. Uh, at least a score draw from the jaws of defeat mm. and you know the, the table's set that if someone a more interesting filmmaker no offense to ron howard but someone with a you know who is who has perhaps something more dynamic to add uh to the to the story would come on and tell this kind of sequel that's been set up who's that going to be who's going to want to come on knowing that 
the last people who came on and wanted to do it differently were shown the door. Yeah, there is definitely that sense. Even if even if the movie had been a huge success, there's probably that sense of like no one really wanting to rock the boat too much, and that probably fits within the overall the overall vision of what Lucasfilm are doing because I think they are very aware of the importance of Star Wars as kind of this the, the legacy of it, I guess, and of the the need to really control all the storytelling that that uh, that occurs. Which makes it even stranger, like, the best of the new movies is the one, there's The Last Jedi, which is the one that takes the most risks and mm-hmm. did the most to annoy people. <laughs> maybe you, you maybe the, the best outcome of all this is that they realise that it's better to let people take a swing and do something nuts, uh, because that's that's kind of what the whole series was is, is built on in some ways, is George Lucas really believing in this particular vision that he had and all of its eccentricities and even though that eventually leads you to the prequels of him you know having unfettered control to do whatever the hell he likes you know it, it's also the thing that made star wars like the urtext for most fantasy and sci-fi pop culture of the last 40 years mm, yeah yeah so i mean it'll, it will it will probably limp mm. uh limp out of screens kind of unceremoniously and be kind of They'll go back to the drawing board, and I, I don't know whether that will kind of delay any kind of announcement they have about the other spin-off films, uh, whether there is the appetite for it that, you know, people want an Obi-Wan Kenobi film or a Boba Fett film, because we've kind of heard they're both in development, and, and the it seems like they're both moving, although there's been no official word from Lucasfilm that either's happening, mm. but... You know, would you be that keen on saying we're going to get an Obi Wan Kenobi movie? Given that the the big pushback for this one was no one wanted it. Yeah, I probably wouldn't be that excited for it. I I, I think I would probably the lesson that I would take from this is that people want to see more stories in this universe, but they also don't want you to just be retreading either well trodden ground with kind of like characters we already know or just kind of like filling in details from the main story which is what Rogue One and Solo both are really just kind of like saying hey remember this like one minor plot detail from that was briefly mentioned in dialogue in the early movies well we're going to make a whole movie about it and Mm. I think that's fine initially certainly it was for Rogue One which was a big success but I think that's in the initial rush of excitement of new Star Wars new Star Wars but I think if the franchise is going to continue and survive it needs to you know tell new stories in this huge vast universe that they have to play in you know it's a great sandbox for people to play in I think just telling stories with characters that we all already know has its limitations both commercially and creatively Mm. Yeah, it's, you know, the whole thing's crying out for more stuff with, you know, new people. And we're going to have a very weird, I think I mentioned this last week, we're going to have a weird situation where the next movie, part nine, is going to be the first film that doesn't feature Han, Luke or Leia. And that'll be interesting to see how those new characters can paddle the Star Wars canoe themselves. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So our main topic for fear of turning this into a Ron Howard fan cast, because we've been talking about a lot of his projects over the last couple of weeks, uh, look out for everyone for our breakdown of The Grinch next week, is yeah. 
Arrested Development Season 5, which debuted on Netflix to surprisingly little fanfare, and we'll probably get into some of the reasons behind that in a minute, uh, earlier this week. Or I should say the first half of it did, because Netflix have started doing this really weird thing where they split their seasons in half like a regular TV network, even though I'm pretty sure those are the episodes that they are holding back are pretty much all done because they've also done it for the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt which I think is also finished production for its final season but they're splitting these in halves for reasons that uh, beggar belief but the the series came back you know it's the second revival season of the show which initially for people who don't know uh, aired on Fox in the early 2000s from 2003 to 2006 for three seasons three pretty much hilarious more or less perfect seasons of comedy came back for a fourth season in 2013 which had its moments i think uh, i'm still i still have a lot of fondness for some bits of it but structurally and formally was very strange and kind of got away from what the show had felt and looked like then they remixed remixed that which came out a few weeks ago and we talked about on our director's cut episode uh, and now the show is back more or less in its original form you know the, the cast are all back it's back to half an hour episodes which is still longer than the show used to be but is more compact and isn't kind of going off in all kind of weird tangents or whatever but mm-hmm. um yeah so it's the, the the revival is back for a fifth season matt you know what are your initial thoughts on this first half of the fifth season of arrested development my initial thoughts, I was filled with a deep sense of regret <laughs> that it's still going. Um, you think they made I, a huge mistake? I, I mean, I was trying to get away from saying that. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, come on. Uh, it's, well, no, it was... I would say that I felt really bad having seen it. Mm. <laughs> that I kind of just longed for the days where that show was effortlessly vital and, you know, incredibly well-crafted. And let's let's get this out of the way, first of all. The show has always been like a big ball of knotted string mm. with, its, with its plot lines and its entanglements. But the fun came in how they were going to unpull it. And you, you know that kind of absolute relief where you get your headphones out of your pocket? And you just pull it and it all just comes out in <laughs> one thing. That's what Arrested Development was. It was this kind of really messy show that had all these things that couldn't possibly work, but they all did somehow. And season four kind of got rid of the string, full stop, and was just a, something completely different. And it's hard to kind of even judge that against the other seasons. This current season, season 5.1 or whatever it is, was just a big knot that was just, you know, the ones that you can't really untie and you kind of, your nails aren't long enough to kind of get under it. And it's just, it, I felt like it was such a slog. I kind of really struggled to find the humour in it. I found that there was humorous situations that I found the characters that I know and love in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of found it hard to care why they were in those situations or... Uh, became particularly invested in how they were going to pay those off. And then other, and then there were points at which I was 
mystified as to what was happening in this in this season and why. And then you realise, well, hang on, they've accrued so much narrative debt from season four mm. that some of it they're just blowing by and they're just saying, oh, yeah, Terry Crews is in this. That, you know, that's clearly not him laying on the floor. Mm-hmm. Just forget that. That stuff's gone. We're moving on. But then other bits, you're like, oh, God, we're still doing this. We're, st- we're still doing these plot lines that are, that are that weren't worth dedicating an hour to in the previous season and we're still going and I, I kind of almost feel like they got to the end of season four and they left it on this big cliffhanger and you're like well they've got to pay it off and I'm getting to the point where like I'm just like why mm. like I don't care anymore and that's such an awful thing to say about what was the best comedy of like the last 15 to 20 years yeah I think I think I I'm I'm Pretty sure I enjoyed this season more than you did. I certainly preferred it to season four, but I think in terms of how the show relates to itself at this point, because you know we're we're what twelve years away from when the show originally ended, and I think certainly the first two series of the original run are pretty much miraculous. I think. Like, like you talk about like the the naughtiness of the storytelling that sense of of that effortless cleverness of it you know the the whole idea that they were setting things up in the first season that weren't going to be paid off until the third or even the prospective like fourth or fifth seasons they had all of these kind of running jokes that you didn't realize were running jokes until you'd seen the whole thing or stuff that they never even really touched upon. Like the whole idea that, uh, that Tobias is uh, an albino black man, which I think is something that they referenced in season four. I don't think they referenced it in this season at all, but you know, there, there are jokes that they have just been playing out for a very, very long time. And there is a, there is, there is fun to seeing them kind of revisit some of that stuff again. Now, you know, 15 years after the show originally started. But I think for me, the the big problem with this season, even though I list half season, well, the big problem is that it's only half season. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it, it really does feel like what we're seeing is a lot of setups for punchlines that we have to wait six months to see, which mm. is inherently unsatisfying uh, storytelling. But I think also there is, like the fourth season, there is a very fuzzy sense of what the stakes are like i can i can broadly point to the what the ongoing plot lines are which is what happened to lucille 2 everyone except michael seems to have some sense of what happened to her because there's all these bits of like people playing dramatic music in the background anytime anyone mentions lucille 2 which suggests that she is dead and that they're involved in a cover-up but also they don't really play that they don't really talk about it that much um so that's going on in the background Lindsay is running for congress in in terry cruz's character's place and other than that like most of it is just kind of like picking up on some of the plot strands from the previous season and some of that stuff i do really really like i I think all of the stuff with job kind of spiraling into his own sense of denial over the fact that he's in love with tony wonder after they had one of the weirdest sex scenes in any sitcom ever or at least one of the weirdest setup sex scenes ever i really enjoy that i think one of the things that's quite interesting about this this season is like you can really see the influence of 
will on having played a much more textured character in the form of Bojack Horseman for four years in between. I think he really teases out the depth of Job and the desperation of him in a way that has previously been more or less suppressed. Similarly, the plot line, you know, the, the f- way in which the show has to pick up the pieces of Michael and George Michael's fractured relationship, I think that stuff is, is quite funny and fairly sweet. That's kind of like the closest the show has ever come to having an emotional heart. But yeah, uh, uh, the big problem for me is that there's no real sense of why anything is happening or what it's building towards. And mm-hmm. the show being cut off halfway through doesn't help with that sense. Cause it really does. Like you and I both said, we had the exact same experience, which is that it got to the end of episode eight and we were both expecting, Oh, another episode is going to play. I was like, no, here's a trailer for some Netflix original comedy that you have no interest in watching. Mm, yeah. I think stakes is an interesting thing to mention because they are, well, they're not absent from this season, but they're mm. just confusing as to what they are. Yeah. Um, and I feel like... I, I get what you're saying about Job being a kind of a more nuanced, melancholy character, but nothing really has changed about his character since the episode after he slept with Tony Wonder last season. Mm. It's just been the same thing for m- more time. Um, yeah. He, he's not re- he's, that's not really deepened anything about his character or moved it on in any way. He's just still kind of morose and up and like upset with himself that he's not straight anymore. For me, he seemed to be digging into like his sense of confusion a lot. Like you really see it in the the whole bit where he and George Senior are going around Mexico, and George Senior, who's been taking, unbeknownst to him, has been taking all of this estrogen, which has reduced his sex drive. They're both talking about all the women they want to have sex with when they clearly either don't want to or or incapable of doing it and he is just playing into like this image he has of himself as this real kind of like man's man and i think will on does a really good job of selling like say his, the desperation of job underneath this facade that he is putting up and the show for me and you know i, I re-watched most of season five before recording this he find the show finds a lot of kind of permutations on that which then builds up to the emotional catharsis in so much as anything Job does can have emotional catharsis of him seeing Tony Wonder again and them doing that weird magic trick on the parade, which seemed to go wrong. Although, like I say, it's in the last episode before it cuts off, so it's hard to tell exactly if it did go wrong or not. But mm. uh, I, I, I personally found his arc and particularly... Job's performance, uh, Job's performance, Will Arnett's performance to be really, really funny and affecting, particularly when he gets into like proper cringe comedy of him giving that awful speech for George Sr. at the ceremony where they're awarding themselves the Family of the Year award, uh, which is just this completely rambling speech where he's talking about all their saying all this disjointed stuff about their time in Mexico. And it even ends with Ron Howard saying it was an awful speech, which uh, I found very funny. Um, Mm. But yeah, I I, I personally found a lot of, lot of his storyline worked for me. And he was one of the elements that I thought, okay, this, this works and feels like a natural evolution for the show. Even if the way in which this has been released feel is, is it makes it inherently unsatisfying. Because mm, yeah. it just feels it... as if he's building to something, and then it just stops. 
Does it? Do you feel a little queasy about Jeffrey Tambor's involvement? Because oh yeah, absolutely. Whilst um, there was a pretty good gag about which referenced him um, kind of going under the guise of a woman in the last season, where he said that you know, whilst it was a convincing portrayal of a middle-aged woman who wasn't going to win any awards for it. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I mean, this is this, I think that joke is funny. Yeah. But when, when you've got Jeffrey Tambor and everything that's gone around him and it also like, you know, we'll get into this. I'm sure the whole New York times thing that happened last week mm-hmm. uh, or the week before last casts somewhat of a shadow over this season as a whole. Um, it kind of just, it kind of really does, take away from what's going on it's it's almost like you know it's hard to make any kind of jokes when that's just hanging over it, the show so prominently yeah i think it's it's interesting with with that particular character with the character of george senior who's always been an emotionally abusive person anyway mm-hmm. so it's not like you know, he was playing this kind of like really positive character and it's now forever ruined. It's more like, it feels like, oh, this feels more, this feels authentic because we know that he was a abusive person anyway, which isn't worth the fact that people have suffered at his hands. And, mm-hmm. you know, that, that obviously is terrible and he shouldn't have been involved in the show. Um, although I'm not sure in terms of the production, whether or not they had started work on this when the news broke of him, you know, kind of sexually harassing uh, some of his cast members and some of the the staff on Transparent and whether or not it would be too difficult to remove him. But at the same time, when you watch the show, it's like, there's so little that George Sr. does on the show at this point that it probably would be easy enough to write him out in some way and to do it in a kind of a clever way because, you know, the the show is nothing if not clever. Mm. And it's... Um, you say that like George Senior does so little in the show, you could probably remove him. I did kind of feel like that about some of the other characters as well. Mm. Uh, Lindsay, until fairly late on in the season, has very little business. Yeah, she's she's absent for what feels like two or three episodes in the middle there. Yeah, Tobias is stapled on as being Lucille's therapist, and that relationship doesn't really add much can Mm. we talk just quickly about how terrible how truly terrible that first episode is it is easily the worst episode of arrested development that there ever is partly because it's not especially funny but also because it is doing such thankless work of recapping everything from the Mm. previous season and it it, it crystallizes something about me about the show for me that like you know when it starts with like a thing about scuba gear, mm. um, and you know you have uh, Michael discovering the scuba gear in the attic. Then we get a story about why the scuba gear was there. Then we get flashbacks telling about George Michael being scared of scuba gear, and then we get a, a payoff for the punchline with Joe. But then you're like, oh, okay, obviously that scuba gear. They've they've made such a kind of big deal about talking about this scuba gear that it's going to have to come back later and then Mm. it does but all it is is a plot point to push us to michael discovering the beach house yeah it also they also do uh, go back to again emotionally for using it as the reconciliation between him and george michael where they're both in scuba gear underwater and they both and 
uh, Michael makes the, asks the symbol asking him if he's okay, and he says yes, which mm. I thought was very sweet. That was very sweetly handled. But yeah, that. Other than that, the only reason why there's this long bit talking about Scooby Gear is, yeah, like you say, to set up the fact that he accidentally ends up discovering this cottage where his wife Tracy had died years and years before, and the family had said they'd sold it, but actually hadn't, and just had been lying to him for years. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of, I have to say, I started to. I've never been bored during Arrested Development, but mm. in this season, I, I found kind of fairly longish stretches of just zoning out of what was going on and having to rewind it to think what's happening again. Mm. I'm still not 100% sure why Buster's in prison. He, yeah, that, even after watching it a second time, it's still not entirely (laughs) clear. (laughs) It's not just me. I'm I'm, I'm like, it's it's genuinely unclear, right? Michael convinces him to turn himself in to say that he's not missing, but then he gets put in prison for, they think he's killed Lucille or something? Yeah, basically, as near as I could understand it, and I could be completely wrong... Michael initially tells Buster to stay hidden like the Milford man that he is. Yeah. Um, in order to make the family think that he's missing, essentially, so that Michael can, you know, get revenge on them and to teach them a lesson about ignoring Buster because he's been hiding out in the house for ages. And mm-hmm. then he says to him, and then you turn yourself in after a few days, you know, after 72 hours, so that we can then say you're not missing and then we can use that to kind of teach the family a lesson about not paying attention to you or whatever. And then he turns himself in and then he just starts talking about, yeah, being, being one of the last people to see Lucille too, uh, alive or at least discovering her unconscious or whatever, and then getting into trouble. But it is, it is fairly murky as to why he's there or how long he's there. And like season four, there's a lot of uncertainty about the timeline. Like the only thing I could tell you is that it takes place in 2015, which is a weird choice. But I guess they justify it by the fact that it's, you know, they're they're pointing out that they had a lot of stuff about building a wall between America and Mexico in season four. And then that became a rallying cry for Donald Trump's presidential campaign. And so that kind of forms the, the backdrop. And there is one fairly funny gag where George Michael, where someone George Michael mistakenly believes that someone has died and he just goes, oh fuck 2015 which I thought was quite funny uh, mm. as a callback to memes of yesteryear. But yeah it, 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 a large part of the show for me it kind of goes over the line from convoluted which is something that the show has always done well to just straight out confusing and mm murky and messy and even on and on second viewing some of the bits and pieces of the plot make more sense but it still doesn't have that sense of clarity and i think part i wonder how much of that is intentional on the part of mitch Hurwitz because you know michael is the point of view character and at the start of the show of the season he's recovering from the effects of the forget me now that um job gave him and so a certain amount of dislocation is maybe inherent to that idea because he is a character who doesn't fully understand what's going on because he doesn't realize he's missed two days or whatever but also there's that sense like like say it feels like this first eight episodes is largely all about like setting things up and rising action or whatever and then after episode eight it's like oh see you in five months or whatever 
Mm, yeah, I, I feel like what you were saying, um, you know, the, the 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 kind of the line between convoluted and confusing mm. is that the show used to have such relish in how they used to add layers and layers and layers of stuff mm. in order to pull it out of the bag and it'd be immensely satisfying and funny. And splitting this season in two really doesn't help their cause if that's what they've done. They've mm. spent eight episodes really, really, you know, piling on the thing, the uh, the, the layers for it to be revealed and all the jokes to pay off if you've got to wait six months for them. That's really good. It's really going to hinder how effective that is. Because mm. I, I certainly, in my memory of watching the show when it originally aired, or at least like watching it on DVD, because I think I missed the first series when it aired in the UK, but I, I watched it all on DVD and then watched the second and third as they aired. There was always that sense like the first couple of episodes of the seasons would be, of each season would be funny, but they wouldn't have that level of, of comic density until that that the later ones did because they would build on so many of the the bits and the jokes and the running gags and you know side gags and things like that and you would just accrue so much knowledge of the characters and of their world that the show would eventually just become funny because of the this interconnecting layer of references and of ideas that were being thrown out there and then you would go back and rewatch the first episode and it would be hilarious from the off because you'd be like oh i see where they're setting up all of these things and this half season for me, it felt like, apart from the fact the first like first episode is particularly bad, and like the second and third also feel as if they're really struggling to kind of maneuver things in place in terms of the plot. It's only really once you get to the third episode and the family are all together in Lucille Two's apartment, and it starts to coalesce a little bit more. And by the end of it, I was really, really enjoying it. It, it really does feel as if the show was only really starting to get into gear by episode five or six, maybe. And then mm. the last two is like, okay, this, the, the show I think seems to be building and going somewhere. And then, yeah. And then it's like, well, see you in eight, see you in November or whenever it comes out. Yeah. I was, I was actually quite surprised to when I was talking about it on Twitter to have quite a few people say that they'd bailed after mm. a few episodes, which yeah. is something that, like, even season four, in its un-kind-of-remixed form, um, which was, you know, let's be honest, it was a, a mess, but there were still some highlights, and, mm. you know, it was pretty good when it worked and pretty bad when it didn't. Um, you stuck with it, and, like, both you and I, we, we did an episode on it, like, way back when, but we both... Watched it twice in a week, and I kind of don't really feel anything like going back to see five again. And the idea that I'm going to have to watch it again to remind myself what's happened because <laughs> I've forgotten already um, before the second half comes out it doesn't fill me with joy because it was a slog, um, which is not what Rest of Development has ever been for me. It's never been a slog. It's always been a joy. Yeah, it definitely feels as if the show is really that there's a real level of effort involved here that was never there in the old days. Mm. Like, even though I do, I do enjoy this episode. And I, this season, this half season, I did get a lot out of it more so than maybe I was expecting going in. Cause I didn't have particularly high hopes. 
but there is that definite sense it really feels as if they're struggling to try and do now what in the past was so easy and mm-hmm. i don't know if it's because maybe also it doesn't help that the episodes are still longer than they were in the original versions like the the original seasons were all 22 episodes long because that's how long you would have to do to fit in eight minutes worth of adverts and these ones are all i think they weren't wind up being about 26 episodes long when you factor out the like ads and things like that and maybe there's something about those extra four minutes of screen time that really hurt the show's rhythm not so much Mm. as like when the episodes were 39 minutes long uh, as in season four but that there is definitely that sense that you know part of the thing that was great about the original run was the the density of the jokes but also the snappiness of them the fact that you were getting jokes delivered at an incredibly fast rate and while there are sequences in this season that have that that quality to them like i really enjoy the bit where buster is in the visiting room with michael and he's recounting the um his experience of the evidence guy coming to show them the video of him trying to erase the tape of lucille 2 being uh knocked out or whatever and the evidence guy is like walking out complaining about how they made him walk all the way in there to show something from their Dropbox. And Michael says, like, Buster, I don't care about the evidence guy. And Buster just goes, oh, join the club. Because <laughs> he's just like, he's so, he feels really put out by the way this poor evidence guy is treated. And I think there's, there's they do a lot of, there's a lot of great scenes with Tony Hale as Buster, who obviously is, it was always great on the show, but I think is really honed his ability to... Uh, to just kind of like play those sort of characters over certainly over the 15 years since Arrested Development started but particularly on Veep where he plays a a kind of a similarly feckless character uh, and has been rewarded with two Emmys for it so I think there's there's lots of kind of like little pleasures dotted throughout but yeah there, there definitely isn't that sense of of the original show where it seemed as if like pretty much every scene had what some new delight in it mm, yeah I kind of always loved Tobias as the mm. character. He was always kind of my favourite character. But I feel like in terms of talking about uh, characters who are passengers in this mm. season, um, he's kind of one that really suffers because I'm still not sure, 100% sure, why he's why he's got a pretend Michael hanging around with him all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think... They they initially have him there, Kyle Mooney playing his acting partner slash bastard son, Murph. uh, Murphy Brown, or one. That's right. Yeah. yeah, he has him playing Buster because they're doing some kind of like they're filming like an advert for Lindsay's campaign, and they don't know where Buster is, but they also don't really care, so they just hire him to be fake Buster in the background. And Tobias, because they also don't know where Michael is at that point, is pretending to be Michael. And yeah, like, there's not a lot of sense as to why any of that stuff is happening with Tobias in this this season. But I did quite enjoy the scene of him playing his version of Michael whilst Michael is talking in the background. And he's, like, trying to match the kind of, like, deadpan yet flustered quality of jason bateman which was kind of like a 
a fun little physical thing he did, but then them continuing that bit over multiple episodes of him playing different characters from the family never really works as well as that like one fleeting thing does. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a shame because when you manage to pull off what they didn't manage in season four, which is get everyone in the room together at least more than once without the aid of green screen or uh, mm. other such trickery, the, the the magic, the spark just doesn't seem to come as easily as it used to. Yeah, they. I mean, I think they do a better job. They certainly do a better job of hiding the fact that they don't have, they can't get everyone together too much this time around. I think because, like the the secret of the original show was the because Michael was the central character. You never really needed to have everyone in the same room all that often. Like you needed Jason Bateman, but you could still have any combination of the other characters like show up, and then every episode you'd have one or two scenes where you had multiple people all gathered around i think they're a little better at handling that sort of stuff now so you can get the scene where they're throwing a bus uh, they're throwing a buster for party they're throwing a party Mm. for buster having believed that barry zuckercorn has got him out of jail when in fact they have just bailed barry out of jail um for one of his many crimes Mm -hmm. and uh you know everyone's there and they're kind of playing off of each other and there is some of that old spark, but yeah, even then, it's not great. It, the show, I think, still does really well in exploring kind of relationships, the smaller relationships. Like, I think a lot of the stuff with George Michael and Maybe still works. Um, they are still, their interplay is still very funny, particularly once Elia Shawkat is dressing up as a 70, as a 75-year-old woman mm-hmm. and playing her version of a grandmother i particularly like her delivery of the line uh you know uh and pretend like you're there for a booty call as the old people think the young people say (laughs) uh uh, i think she in particular she really seems to be relishing the chance to play a character that broad and uh irredeemable again having played like more nuanced characters in all of her various indie movie work and on search party more recently She, she seems to really enjoy the fact she gets to play a character who is uh, you know has a tiny shred of decency but for the most part is just a monster who's trying to destroy everyone mm. uh, and has a lot of good neologisms like speculying crime storming <laughs> crime storming was my favorite of hers and but i, I think that again maybe's uh situation that she's in where she's posing as an old person in old people's home I kind of was sitting there watching it and I was thinking, oh, you know, she's having fun doing the physical stuff here. She's got, Mm. like, you know, some wacky teeth and, like, she's just a great performer anyway. We've talked quite a lot about how we like Alia Shawkat. And then I was just like, why is this happening again? Yeah. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It was like, back in, you know, seasons one, two and three, stupid shit like that would go down every week but there would always be a purpose. And now we have to wait for six months to see what the purpose is. Yeah. I think they, they kind of explain it because she's there with Stan Sitwell because it's a, it's a condo that Lucille too had also owned and she had had it as a timeshare with Stan Sitwell and it's revealed. And like, she thinks that Stan Sitwell is this kind of like completely senile old man. And in fact, he is kind of using her because he thinks she has information on where Lucille 2 is, and he's, like, sharing that in- information with Sally. So there's kind of, like... It it kind of does lead 
to something in terms of the broader plot, but that broader plot is so ill-defined <laughs> that you're right. You're right. There is still that sense of like, okay, I guess that was important in terms of the story, but also it was we don't know what the story is at this point <laughs> in any clear sense. So, yeah, so there's that weird balance where you kind of think, oh, why? What? <laughs> I guess it makes sense. Um, but yeah, I, I, I particularly enjoyed... Um, there's there's one really fun bit of her when she first moves into the condo and Ron Howard just kind of like says, she was trying to get a swan in her condo and it's never explained why she was trying to do that. She was just running around with a bit of tuna trying to get a swan to go into the condo, which maybe that'll be explained at some other point in the, the back half, but I just really enjoyed it as like a really weird, uh, a really weird extra detail. Um, I also thought that, Although I think it's a still a mistake to have Ron Howard as a character in the show at this point, mm-hmm. not because he's especially bad, but because like all of the stuff with Imagine always felt more clever than funny. Yeah, and it doesn't. Uh, they they cut back on it a lot this time, but they still occasionally go back to it. Uh, I did really enjoy the episode where they go to the Howard family barbecue, and you see all of his various acting children and his dad who has since passed away shows up for a bit, which is quite nice, but I mainly like it just because of Ron Howard's uh, apron, which said, how would you like your burger? Which is a great, <laughs> uh, it's a great visual <laughs> joke. Uh, but that, that also has some of the absolute worst shot for shot reverse shotting in the whole movie. Cause it's in the whole show. Cause it was very clear that they only had Ron on set for that one scene where the whole family was there and everything else. They just shot him and then mm. a stand in with oh, his wig talking to Michael for every other bit. Yeah. Uh, it's very distractingly bad. Cause when I first caught the back of his head, I was mm-hmm. like, they could have got someone who was actually anywhere near his age. Cause it just <laughs> seems like they've grabbed like a 25 year old grip and stick a, stick a baseball cap on him. And yeah. yeah, like that's that. I mean, that's you know, you know, they do that in films all the time. It's uh, it's all smoke and mirrors, but in that that instance, it's like super, super distracting because it's a really long scene as well of him talking mm. to Michael. Every time they cut back, like there's, it, it feels like there's like twenty or thirty cuts in there, and when you realise, oh, they haven't shared the screen at all during this entire discussion, it becomes. Uh, yeah, it becomes very distracting. And they still keep they're still going with the Mr. F uh, gags, mm. um, which always um, make me laugh because yeah. they they find the the, the reveal of the Mexican Romneys uh, really, really made me laugh. Uh, mainly because it's it for that joke to work, you have to have a very specific reference of like George Romney's campaign for governor for for president in the 60s when he was accused of being a mexican raf uh national <laughs> mm. and being like because he was i believe he was born in his i think it's the same thing with like ted cruz where he was technically born in mexico but still an american citizen but yeah like they're being like oh i guess i guess there could be mexican romneys it's it's such an esoteric choice mm. um, um i'll tell you something that like i think we had an exchange on twitter about this in the week where you're suddenly reminded that there was a storyline from season four that you'd forgotten mm. about that's jerked in when the, they end up with 
you get a twofer in, in season five where uh, debris is found living with uh, Barky Mark's mum. Mm, yeah. And I was like, shit, those two were characters. <laughs> you know, and I only watched the remix of season four two weeks ago. And like, that is the general impression that I feel like I have Barky Mark's face blindness um, mm. for all the <laughs> characters that are kind of surplus to requirements in season four. Because as much as I love Maria Bamford, her character has kind of seemed to seem to have expended her comedic potential. Yeah. Um, and there she was just kind of crammed in there again. And I was like, Oh wow. Like, you know, we're still doing this. Yeah. It was very, very weird when she showed up, but especially because that whole cul-de-sac of plot doesn't really amount to much of anything. I guess it inadvertently, again, it's, it's like the, the Stan Sitwell thing. It, inadvertently ties into the main plot because George Senior because because uh Tobias becomes a mailman who dresses up as an ostrich mm. and goes around and he runs into Michael and George Senior and they discover that like the reason why Oscar was becoming more masculine was because the runoff from a porta potty was giving all of the testosterone of the men who went to that sweat lodge into the macaroo and that's why he, and he was eating it and so he became more masculine god just explaining the <laughs> plot details of this it just feels so exhausting mm. which I, I think gets the, the heart of why the show feels like it's struggling so much at this point uh is you know it kind of like ties into that and then it sets off a car chase with uh with george michael which ends with the mexican romneys and all this sort of stuff like it just it just doesn't feel like it's in any way central or important, but also it's not really funny enough to justify it being there just as like a weird offshoot. Because like if you think about like season three of Arrested Development, which is is probably my least favorite of the original run, uh, and when I the show kind of felt like the wheels were starting to come off a little bit, not for often for reasons that weren't really due to the. The, the production so much, of the writing so much as it was just the show has being jerked around so much production wise but like all of the stuff with like we britain is completely inessential to anything that's really going on in the storyline of the show but it's funny mm -hmm. and strange and weird and eccentric and, and interesting and i feel like a lot of the the meandering way in which the story is is being told now doesn't have that caveat like the show is either the, the 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 show has a lot of things which feel like they're just there to advance the plot but again we don't really know what that plot is at this point so maybe once the second half is revealed a lot of those kind of things will look better in retrospect but at this point you look at a lot of that stuff and you kind of think i don't really know why this is in here and even in the the short and punchier format the show has returned to it, it it feels like that's valuable real estate that you could cut out for funnier gags. Mm. Although I will say I do enjoy Kyle Mooney as the aforementioned Murphy Brown, who really doesn't seem to have any clue what's going on. Mm. Yeah, he's the kind of uh, the audience's proxy uh, mm. in that regard. Uh, I certainly felt a bit like Murph at times. It's interesting that you say like season three is is uh, the weakest, and you're correct. It, it, it generally is, and. 
you know there are many reasons for that and we've we've discussed them before but if you think about the the situation you just tried to explain to me someone who'd seen it and how kind of exhausting that was and then you just say okay well let's pick us uh, something from season 3 let's just say that like we've got a long standing gag or a thing that you know job and george senior aren't kind of like you know relatable and george senior has always neglected job and job just wants a dad so he agrees kind of thinking, half thinkingly, that he's ordered a train set um, for him to kind of build with him and he kind of misunderstands that they're going to build a train set. But really, George Michael's ordered a jetpack um, from Japan. <laughs> At the same time, Tobias is being probed by the FBI um, with Frank, who is blowing his mind, and he's asking him to be a mole, but Tobias, because he's a stupid guy who wants to be an actor, <laughs> thinks he's going to play a mole. At the same time... Michael's arranged for some Japanese businessmen to come and have a look around the Southern Valley development. And then we're in a situation where all of those things pay off, where the Japanese investors are in the background. They built the model railway and asked the guys to squint to make them think it's further away. And then um, George Michael turns up with a backpack and uh, Tobias as a mole who trashes Tiny Town. And uh, the Japanese businessmen think it's a great insult on... Uh, their culture and the idea of Godzilla <laughs> and that whole thing is just remarkably plotted. And you think, how are they going to, how are they going to pull all of those disparate elements into something funny? And I've just explained it in a yeah. very clear way. And that's exactly how that works. Whereas, you know, in this season I'd be like, well, okay, well maybe he's in an old people's home. I can't remember why. And she's now <laughs> touching Ed Bedgley Jr.'s erection. Um, and yeah, and it's it, it's really tough to get around that. And even though it's the previous seasons and the previous plots were incredibly dense, mm. um, like yeah, so dense to quote Rick McCallum, it rhymes. That you, it still managed to yeah, it rhymes like poetry. It rhymes. <laughs> um, uh, I think they may have gone too far in a few places <laughs> to uh, mm. to use that entire thing to. Um, to, to tie back to Arrested Development, they are they have uh, overreached and um, the results are not particularly uh, fun. And I really do hope that it pulls it around and we have this this kind of back nine is going to mm. be super enjoyable and, and like super fun and, and kind of pays off so you can sit down and watch all of them in not in one sitting but in at least one go and you'd be like, well, okay, this is clearly laying the groundwork for some very clever writing which has always been the show's hallmark mm. delivered by you know hugely talented actors through the vessels of hugely unlikable characters <laughs> yeah i think uh in terms of like the show setting stuff for a bunch of kind of details off and then coming together i think that the the most successful example of that in the fifth season might be when Buster is first in prison and George tells him that he needs to tackle a skinhead in order to make everyone think that he's tough. And then later on, he's being interviewed by Ron Howard and he runs in there and just jams his head into a table. And I think that that only kind of works because then there's a, a later joke where they're, they're talking about how he was mistaken for a skinhead. And uh, Michael says say what you will about his qualities as a filmmaker, but he is not a Nazi sympathiser. And <laughs> and in the voiceover, Ron Howard just goes, thanks! <laughs> Which is a very good joke. But I think it gets to the point of, of like, uh, what, what I, I've just realised as you were talking about the way the old episodes worked, is it feels as if 
Mitch Hurwitch and Jim Vallely and all of the other writers are now writing seasons of Arrested Development the same way that they used to write original uh, uh, individual episodes. And that same kind of density and that sense of things kind of like plot lines kind of being thrown out there and interweaving and eventually coming together, which used to be done in, in like 30 minutes is now being spread over, what, eight hours, I think it will end up being when all is said and done. And I think that is a fundamental problem. And I think is that them that's them trying to uh, evolve and adapt to the new medium in which they're being shown like the idea that people will just been watch binge watch this whole thing in in a single sitting or whatever but i think in doing so they seem to have lost the core of what made the show special in the first place and even though there are flashes of it and i think there are still pleasures to the show just mainly because of the actors and uh, you know like jason bateman is still great at just kind of like tossing off little one-liners at the end of sentences and of there's there's lots of great playing with language and misunderstandings even though all of those pleasures are still there i think fundamentally the way the show is now delivered has altered how it is made and that that something is lost in that mm-hmm. yeah no i wholeheartedly agree that it do you feel like they they perhaps just should have left it at three it's, I mean, it's, it's tough to answer that because yeah. there there is in the, you know, season four and five, probably a decent season in there somewhere had they been given the proper circumstances under which to execute it. Hmm. I think I love I love those characters so much and I love the actors and I love the, 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 the just the the way in which the show works when it works so much that I kind of feel like based just on the work itself i think yes they should have kept they i'm glad they kept making it but in terms of the extra textual stuff like the fact that was revealed in that new york times interview that jeffrey tambor was incredibly verbally abusive towards jessica walter that alone makes me think that they should have stopped yeah like her having to deal with his process and people just being fine with him being just like a really truly terrible person i mean that casts all of that stuff in a very different light and listening to the interview was very very hard and it kind of made me think man this probably wasn't worth it for them to keep going if she has to stay working in the same room with with someone like jeffrey tambor who does seem to be for all his gifts as a as a comedic actor does seem to be someone who needs you know help and has a string of of you know of of people who have been who have suffered at his hand lying behind and none of their pain is really worth two fairly funny but not as good seasons of arrested development mm yeah none of it was worth uh mediocre comedy um mm. which is what makes it like had had those things not happened behind the scenes we'd probably be just kind of slightly bemoaning the fact that it's a substandard season of Arrested Development or mm. a average season of Arrested Development. But now it, it takes on wider ramifications and, and it's it's not just about a comedy show anymore, unfortunately, which is, mm. you know, only one person's fault. Yeah, well, it's it's his fault and I think also the fault of a lot of people who 
enabled him mm-hmm. as as is on display in that that interview where Jason Bateman's conforming to Michael Bluth in a way which kind of makes the performance seem less good because it seems like he was just playing himself for the entirety of the run of the show. Uh, just kind of tries to downplay her, and Tony Hale did that a bit as well, kind of trying to downplay Jessica Walters, uh, you know, anger and her pain at what, uh, at the the kind of the, the abuse that she had suffered from Jeffrey Tambor and... I think there's a real sense of it's very clarifying that interview in terms of really illustrating something that happens in in all industries it's not just the entertainment industry of women being forced not to speak up about things that happen to them about moments of of discomfort and abuse that are even not even physical or sexual but just like emotional verbal abuse and not speaking up because people just like people men mainly Mm -hmm. will just diminish their experience which is what you can definitely hear happening in that interview from everyone except alia shawgat who tries to like push back against them before before she does herself Mm. Uh, which also probably speaks to a generational thing in that the men in the room who all came up at a time when that sort of that idea of like oh it's all about the process you know anything you need to do to make the work happen was more accepted than like maybe Ilya Shawkat's view as someone who is like a, a, a lot younger than all of them being like well no like you should and who has also worked with a lot of people in like the comedy community in the indie film community who don't encourage that sort of stuff where they think like well no like the comfort of the cast should also be hugely important in any creative endeavor you can't mm. just have people being like screamed at and just made to feel like absolute shit because one person in the cast thinks it helps them yeah yeah and it's it's something that i can't believe has taken so long to um to realize that there's nothing great about putting people through the mill mm. in the name of like some kind of genius when it's always, always, always a dude doing it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's always seems to be, you know, a woman who suffers at the end of the day and it's, you know, I can't believe we've got to 2018 given that like the, you know, the, the, the absolute pinnacle of, of like kind of method acting would have been in the late seventies that we're not looking at that as some kind of like weird curiosity from history of a kind of a bygone of a, of a misogynist age, but like it's mm. still happening. Yeah. And I think I certainly have been guilty of romanticizing a lot of that stuff in the past. I try not to do it so much now, but certainly like when you talk about things like the way apocalypse now was made or something like that, and that's like a whole different kettle of fish, mm. but like the fact that people actually died making <laughs> apocalypse now, like, there is so much of the discussion of that movie is like, oh, you know, you got this great piece of cinema, and like people would, oh, that doesn't make it worth it at all. Yeah, <laughs> like that is not in the the ledger of art and versus morality of you know production. People being dead because of it doesn't really you know add up to that. That that doesn't balance the scales at all. And things like like this, you know, are are also like really awful and don't really balance the scales out. No, no, you're right. 
So, uh, so we'll be back in six months to talk about the part, the second part of the rest of them, maybe. I don't know. We'll probably check in. I'm not sure if we'll do a full episode on it, unless it turns out to be completely redemptive and they murder Jeffrey Tambor on camera uh, <laughs> to, 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 really kind of, uh, to really kind of make it hit home. But until then, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about other things, and uh, including our recommendations in which we talk about something that we have enjoyed and which we think that you the listeners will enjoy as well matt what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week uh, i'm going to recommend something that is insanely popular but no one seems to have seen it in britain uh, a tv show called this is us which is uh, I, I believe it's very popular in america isn't it ed it's a huge hit over here yeah yeah the, it, it was shown on channel four over here but i'm not sure what kind of uptake it's had but it's been on amazon prime and some people have seen it, but most people are just like, oh, what's that? But I'm going to recommend it heartily. Um, it is, uh, and I can't really say too much about it without kind of ruining the very first episode and therefore um, one of the most kind of delightful bits of uh, writing in the show. Um, so what I'm going to say is it's about a group of people who share the same birthday. Um, and it is a show which leans quite hard on melodrama, is it fair to say, it? Yes, and um, but, you know, not as a not as a pejorative, like yeah, that's, that's the genre it exists in. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very emotional. They play mm. big emotional moments, and for me, it works like an absolute dream because there was a three episode stretch in season one um, where I nearly cried all the tears out of my body <laughs> because it was just hammer blow after hammer blow. It won't work for everyone. There'll be if you're in any way <laughs> cynical um, towards things like that, you will probably not get much enjoyment out of it. But the great thing is, is the cast is incredible. Um, mm. Sterling K. Brown, uh, Milo Ventimiglia, Mandy Moore, who is insanely good in this TV show. Mm. Um, um, and yeah, it's it's um, a very it's so it does ride that line between being like super emotional and like a little bit cheesy at times. But um, it's so sincere in its intentions and it's so um, well done by the cast who kind of understand that, that it's just so winsome. Um, and everyone I've recommended it to in person is currently uh, probably crying right now at the uh, <laughs> uh, various episodes because every episode is a bit of a weeper. Um, but yes, I would heartily recommend it, but also really, really not, look too much about it at the start i would mm. just watch the first episode and then you'll be in yes like you say like there's the, the the first episode in particular does a really good job of surprising the audience and i think that's one of the things that's really great about the show overall is it's just very good at springing not necessarily twists although there are there are plenty of those but you, you know kind of like taking you down one path and then taking you down a completely different one which can be which proves to be very very rewarding and emotionally devastating uh, along the way mm. and once once you've seen it and once you get into the show you'll realize why i've recommended it in this particular episode as a counterpoint mm. to rest of development yeah uh i am going to recommend a sh- a, a movie starring uh, the aforementioned alia shawkat to kind of have a slight Arrested Development connection, but not really. It's a movie that came out a couple of years ago called Paint It Black, which is directed by Amber Tamblin and stars Aaliyah Shawkat as a young woman whose boyfriend commits suicide and she then is thrown into kind of a conflict conflict with the boyfriend's mother, played by Janet McTeer, 
and it is a really great showcase for the Shawcat, who I think has become, um, you know, we did talk about this in a whole episode, uh, one of the best actors currently working today, certainly in the US. I think it's a great showcase for her dramatic skills, which uh, I think are underrated because she's so often associated with comedies. But, uh, you know, her ability to kind of like make the conflict with this, the, the mother of her her boyfriend really has, you know, that between her and Janet Mateer, there's such great tension and, and frisson between them. And, you know, there's that real sense of they both love this person, but they hate each other. And, you know, there, there's a lot of tension that exists there. It's very well directed by uh, Amber Tamblyn. And I think it, that she makes some really bold choices, particularly in making the pretty much the entire second half sort of like a Jane Eyre-esque gothic story which is really fascinating, the idea of making a gothic story and setting it in kind of a big house in LA is is really cool and fascinating. And it's a movie that I don't think enough people have really checked out because I don't think it got that much of a wide release, but it's on Netflix in the US at the moment and also available like to download from iTunes and things like that. And it is well worth checking out if you want to see some great acting and a really compelling and emotionally very fraught story uh which uh certainly for me and i think for a lot of people would really recontextualize Aaliyah shortcut as not just you know maybe fumke although having said that if she was just known for being maybe fumke she would that that would probably be a pretty good thing to be known for because that's one of the like many of the characters in arrested development one of the great comedic characters of the last 20 years mm. i've never even heard of that film and it seems to have it seems to tick a lot of my boxes um, you know, Janet, yeah. Janet McTeer, indie drama, Alia Shawka, Amber Tamblin. I'm in. If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, all the usual places. You can uh, leave us a review that helps us grow our audience. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We're going to start trying to do more things with the Twitter feed than we have recently, in addition to posting our episode links every week. We're also going to be posting what I've been referring to as further viewings, which is, you know, just a, a sprinkling of recommendations tied into whatever the subject was for the week's episode this week, probably be posting a bunch of recommendations of some of the best sitcoms to come out in the years since Arrested Development first aired and, and particularly the last couple of years. Cause I think there's a, there's a lot of really great ensemble sitcoms that have come out in the wake of Arrested Development, which feel like they, took the baton of that show and ran with it so check out the twitter feed for a bunch of that sort of stuff we'll be back next week with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me goodbye from me